our passage. Kids, if you're watching, we're going to talk about economics. You may have heard that word before, but even if you've heard that word, you might not know what it means. And there can be different ways to explain economics, but I'm going to try to help us understand what economics is. Economics, the word that we use, comes from two Greek words, oikos, which means household, and nomos, which means rule or governance. So if you think about oikos, household, nomos, economics, it means household management or household governance. So I explain that so that you can maybe start to think about what this economics, what economics might be. So if it's household management, you live in a household. So let's think about things that need to happen within your household, the tasks and services that allow your family to survive and to function and prosper. Think about the things that help your household, some things that you might do around your house. Maybe you help clean up, right, um, around the house. You clean up your toys or you maybe clean up other things that are left around that your mom or dad asks you to pick up. Maybe you're old enough where you help clean the house. Maybe you vacuum or uh, clean windows or maybe even uh, clean the bathrooms or things like that. Maybe you have a garden, Some of you I know have gardens that you've helped plant and that you weed and that you water. And now this time of year, you're harvesting the food that you helped to grow. So think about those things. Maybe you um, help make meals. Maybe you're old enough where you're learning how to cook or bake. Maybe you help clean up after meals. There are many things that happen in our house to make up the economy of our household. Now, that doesn't even include the jobs that your mom or dad or maybe even you, if you're old enough, have started to to have some jobs to help make money to provide for things that you need, like food and clothing and shelter. Now, we've talked about your house, all the things that happen in your house that make up the household management, the economy of your household, Now think about all the things that people do in our towns and cities and countries to provide for the needs and well-being of people, right? There's all kinds of things. Let's think of a very simple example. Think of a farmer, right? Or before we get to the farmer, think about what it takes for you to have bread to make a sandwich, right? You have a farmer. The farmer grows the wheat. He, He buys the seed, then he plants the seed, then he grows the wheat, then he harvests, harvests the wheat, and then he, the mill buys the, meat, the wheat from the farmer, and the, farmer, and the mill grinds the wheat to make flour, and then the flour is sold to a bakery that uses the flour to make bread, and then the bakery sends the bread out. Somebody drives a truck to stores to deliver the bread that the store has bought from the bakery. And then your family goes to the store, buys the bread, takes it home, and you make a sandwich with the bread. It's a simple understanding of economy. All the things that have to happen in order for you to eat a sandwich. And that's just the bread. And there's so all kinds of ways in which the economy the ways in which people 
provide goods and services to help us live. Now, adults, you may still hear the word economics and your eyes may glass over like the students in Ben Stein's class and Ferris Bueller's day off. You'll remember he's teaching the class about economics and every question he asks is answered with blank, st is answered with blank stares and he says, anyone, anyone? Then the line I think most people remember from the scene that may have made Ben Stein famous does anyone know what Vice President Bush called this in 1980? Anyone? Something D-O-O -O economics. Anyone? Right, voodoo economics. I love that line. While modern economics may seem like voodoo at times. Economics is not some kind of voodoo evil. In fact, as Christians, an aspect of our calling is to understand how God views economics. Now, he has called us as people to engage economically for our good and the good of others. So with that in mind, let's read Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, uh, just lost my place, sorry. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I know you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to have a better understanding of how you understand the world of economics and how economics can bring shalom. 
Lord, we pray that we would be those who, as your people, um, live out a life um, in our economic endeavors that indeed bring shalom both to us, our, us and to our neighbors. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So two weeks ago, Dave Bindewald preached from Hebrews 1 and 10, and last week, Dr. Solgi Bune preached from Psalm 120. And if you missed either, I would encourage you to go back and have a listen. Uh, both very good and encouraging sermons. But after a couple weeks, we're back now to our series, Shalom in the Home and Everywhere Else. Our last sermon in this series was on government shalom from Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. And we looked at how does government bring shalom and how, as Christians, are we supposed to view government? We were reminded that our king is Jesus, and he has given some of his rule and reign to government for shalom. We went to those passages to see the role of government and our response to government. And this week, we move from government shalom to economic shalom. Now, there was a lot left unsaid about government. That happens when you preach one sermon on a particular topic. And a sermon can only get to so much. That same will happen today. While it can be easy to focus on what was left unsaid, I'd encourage us to focus on what is said, not what is left unsaid is unimportant, but as I seek to be faithful to God's Word as we are in this series, I'm seeking to highlight how Scripture speaks counterculturally. Like David Helm reminded us in his quote from a few weeks ago, we must be careful not to interpret in such a way that fits our preconceived ideas, our political thought, our individualism, and personal autonomy. So as we come to this topic this morning, a couple questions to consider. Do we see economics as an aspect of neighbor love, or do we see it as a necessary evil? When we talk about economics this morning, we're not talking about economic theory, but the role we play, how economics function for our good and the good of others. While economic theories can be good and helpful, there are none that are distinctly Christian. Some are more Christian than others, I would argue, but none are distinctly Christian. And so, we're not looking at economic theory, we're looking at economic knowns, economic laws, economic understanding from God's Word. So before we dive into our passage, the parable of the talents, let's look at some foundational economic truths from Scripture. As we read in our passages earlier from the Old Testament, land ownership was one. You know, we read the the proverb about not moving the stone marker uh, for the land. You might have been like, what is that about? Well, that was that God gave his people, when they came into the promised land, he gave each family land that they could use um, for their own economic growth, for their family to, uh, uh, to meet the needs of their family, and for the good of the broader community. And you can imagine if your land, if your property is marked off by stones, now these weren't little stones, they were pretty big stones, but you know, somebody might come walking, about, walking by and be like, who, is anybody looking around? Oh, okay, nobody's looking, I'm just gonna pick up this landmarker and move it over here a little bit and put it down and oh, bing, bang, boom, I've got 
a few more acres of land. We also see, read in, our, uh, in the Deuteronomy passage about uh, the field and the vineyard and the olive grove, about leaving some of the harvest, leaving some of it unharvested so that, it, so that uh, the land could provide for the needs of the fatherless, of the widow, of the poor, of the sojourner. We read about fair weights and measures that God says they're an abomination, that uh, unfair weights and measures. We didn't read about this, but we also see in the Old Testament Sabbath laws. And what's interesting is that we might think of the Sabbath laws often in terms of purely about worship, right? About uh, what it meant to worship God, what it means to worship God even now. What is the Sabbath laws in terms of of those types of things. But in the Old Testament, the Sabbath laws were much more than just about worship. The Sabbath laws also included economic aspects, uh, resting from work, right? The um, not working on the Sabbath of uh, rest for the land, the Sabbath year, the, the release of debt um, in the, the Jubilee and in the Sabbath year, there's release of debt. The release of, uh, of those who are indentured servants or slaves. There was all these laws built into the Sabbath laws that talk about economic activity. And what's interesting is if you, if you think about the exile and the exodus, because you're wondering, well, why is God so concerned about economics? The exodus and the exile both were connected to economics, right? The exile, the prophets, besides uh, their, uh, besides God through the prophets um, telling the people of Israel that they were being sent into exile because of their idolatry of worshiping other gods, the other main thing that God talks about through the prophets about why they're sent into exile is because of the breaking of the Sabbath laws. Now, we might read that and think, you've broken my Sabbaths and think, okay, well, they just weren't worshiping God correctly. But that's really not what God is getting at. God is actually getting at these economic aspects of the Sabbath laws that the people of God were forcing laborers to work on the Sabbath. They were taking advantage of, uh, of, of, of people, of the poor. They were not uh, releasing debts. They were acquiring land and not giving it back to the families that needed to sell that land in order to survive and that the Jubilee law, the Sabbath laws allow, uh, required the land to be given back after a certain amount of time. And so all these things that God called out the people of Israel for through the prophets was a lot about their economic, the way that they treated one another, the way that they understood economics, the economy, and how they um, broke God's law in that. And if you think about the Exodus, one of the things that, one of the major reasons that for the Exodus that God says is that his people were being oppressed, right? And their, and their economy, their ability to produce and to care for themselves and to have land and things like that. They were slaves in Egypt, and he rescues them he, through the exodus out for the good of his people and ultimately the good of the world. 
Christopher Wright in his, thinking about all these things, Christopher Wright in his uh, just seminal work, an amazing book called uh, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, writes this and reminds us that even within individual property rights, even when legitimate, always remain subordinate to the prior right of all people to have access to and use of the resources from the earth. In other words, the claim, I or we own it, is never a final answer in the economic moral argument. For ultimately, God owns all things, and I or we hold them only in trust. Ownership of land and resources does not entail an absolute right of disposal, but rather responsibility or for administration and distribution. So even with all these you know, laws and, and ways in which we understand economic activity, there is still over all of that the fact that God owns all things, that he is the one who owns the earth. He is the one who's created. He is the one who has, holds everything, and he gives it to us in trust as stewards. And here's an example of what Wright is getting at. I don't know how well you know the history of Haiti, but recently, I've become aware of a major factor of why Haiti is so poor. You know, Haiti is one of the poorest countries in the world. And, you know, for years, I just assumed that, well, maybe, you know, maybe they have lack of resources in their country. Maybe they have, you know, um, a lack of work ethic, all these different reasons that maybe some people might have said, well, that Haiti is poor because of this. But What's interesting is that, which I didn't know from history, but I've recently found out, is that Haiti had to pay back a debt, quote unquote, to France that would be equivalent today of $21 billion. In 1825, this was several years after they had gained their independence, France demands reparations. So Haiti, the people of Haiti had uh, rebelled. Um, they were, a, you know, basically a slave nation. Uh, they had rebelled and drove France out, out of Haiti, and they were free. And they were building their economy, they were building their government, they were building uh, a, free, um, a free land, a free country. And then in 1825, France demands reparations by bringing a heavily armed fleet of warships to the port of Prince Bay and demanding that Haiti pay reparations for the slaveholders losing their property. By complying with this ultimatum, which they had to, they had no armed army, they had no way to defend from this. Haiti... complied with this, what amounted to extortion. What's interesting is that other countries supported this action by France, particularly the United States being one of them, because other countries that were slave-holding countries didn't want slaves to get the idea that they could rebel and become free without having some kind of punishment or payment. So from this payment, Haiti gained immunity from French military invasion, relief from political and economic isolation, and a crippling debt. 
that took 122 years to pay off. Think about that. It took Haiti 122 years to pay off this debt to France. Think about how that money could have been invested, could have been used for economic growth and development in Haiti over those 122 years. Haiti finally paid the debt off in 1947. 1947. So they've only been debt-free for 73 years. And in that time period, all the natural resources that Haiti had prior over those 122 years that would have produced probably a very wealthy country were used to pay off the debt that the, that the French required that they pay. You ever wondered why Haiti is so poor? Well, now you know. Now you understand how what Chris Wright says has import into our actual economy, into actually how governments work and function. That what France viewed as theirs was ultimately God's. And if it had, if Haiti, the Haitian people had been able to have the freedoms that of not having to pay off such a heavy debt, we maybe see a much different future for that country. So let's get to our passage. Douglas O'Donnell, one commentator, reminds that the talents symbolize more than money. I'm sure that for those of you who have heard this parable preached or read this parable or did a Bible study on this parable, it's often taught or discussed as more than money. But he wants to remind, he says, it's more than money, but it's not less than money. He says, he says listen, just because Jesus is not teaching economic theory here, don't think he isn't teaching some economic truths. Money matters matter to Jesus. And it is the master's money, quite plainly, that we are dealing with here. While we need not limit the application of the parable to money matters, let's not be so quick to expand talents to mean everything except the use of our money. And so this morning, I'm actually going to not talk about the other aspects of talents, since I think that we have, many of us have heard heard that, but I'm actually going to focus in on money, on economics, on how this functions in our life. So the main point that we're looking at today is that King Jesus declares that we use his resources wisely and faithfully. You see, this, this parable is about the master, Jesus, and this master, who is our king, desires that we use his resources wisely and faithfully. And what we're going to do is I want to look at the third servant first and then the first and second servant. So the third servant is interesting. He, you know, we, he, he comes to the master and he said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. It's interesting, this 
sounds kind of like pious talk, like, oh, great master, right? I mean, he acknowledges Jesus as a master or Lord. But in fact, he's actually taking his name in vain. He sees Jesus as hard or harsh or even mean, merciless, cruel, someone who acts unjustly, demanding a harvest from a field where no seeds have been planted. His view of God is so high, it's too low, right? He sees God as this holy other. And yet Jesus has come to us as God, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. And Jesus is not a harsh master, right? He reminds us to come to him all who are weary and heavy laden and he will give us rest for his yoke is easy and his burden is light, right? He, he's saying that there's still work to be done, but my burden is easy, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This servant has an upside-down view of his master, of his Savior. His, this servant doesn't understand who Jesus is. Jesus' response is even kind of sarcastic. He he responds with the words of the servant, but it's in a question like, really? That's who you think I am? You really don't know me very well. That's who you think I am. He has a view of God that is wrong. He has a fear of God, but it's an improper fear. He, and he has the he has the audacity to blame Jesus, right? The generous master, he has the audacity to blame him like for his own apathy and activity. It's, it's like, well, it's, you know, I mean, if you weren't like this, then I would have felt free to spend and to use the money that you gave me. It's, it's kind of like Adam in the garden, right? When, when uh, God comes and Adam's like, well, it's, it's the woman that you gave me, this good gift that you gave me. It's, it's her fault. It's her fault. Right? That's kind of what the servant is doing here. This good gift that you gave me, <laughs> why did you give me such a good gift? It's kind of your fault that you gave me all this. The sin here is the sin of omission. Right? We all know the sins of commission, right? All the, the do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not covet. All, all those Ten Commandments plus others that are worthy of judgment, but what's so wicked about not doing anything? Yeah, I think sometimes as Christians, we can kind of fall into that trap. It's like, well, maybe I just don't, won't do anything, right? That way it's safe. It's, it's better if I just don't do anything. If I don't, don't say anything, if I don't do anything, if I don't use the gifts that God has given me, it's just safer that way, right? Like, I, I don't, there's nothing to lose. Um, it's just safer, and Jesus is reminding us here with this example of the third service, servant that those who are truly following Jesus are ones who are willing to take risks. <laughs> those who are willing to speak when things should be spoken. Those who are willing to stand for those who need to be stood up for. Right? It's the sin of omission that many of us commit more often than the sins of commission. 
right? We think that inactivity is the safest way to go. But Jesus reminds us that inactivity is actually wicked. And he says that those who are inactive in his kingdom, those who do not understand who he is, even though they may call him Lord, just like the, um, just like the parable of the sheep and, goat, sheep and goats that come next in this chapter. Jesus is saying, this servant is a goat. Lord, Lord, when did we see you in need? This servant is using the same type of language. But Jesus is saying, you don't know me? Obviously. And therefore, I don't know you. And the punishment for the servant is that there is, he goes to where there is no one or nothing to see, other darkness. There's nothing to do. It's almost like in the context of this, like eternal unemployment for, forever. And re, he'll have this opportunity to forever the regrets of lost opportunities, misspent chances and stupid choices, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus gives us this example to warn us, to remind us that we as his followers are not to be inactive in the kingdom, but are to be actively working, to be actively seeking his glory and his dominion, to be actively doing the work that he's called us to do. And in the first and second sermon, we see this. We see this that Jesus calls us and desires us, the kind of servants that we are to be. You know, before we get to that, looking at them directly, it might help us to have a little bit of understanding. You may have heard, you know, a denarius before. You know, it's a low unit of currency. Uh, not exactly sure how much that would have equated to, but it, it was a day's wages of a common laborer in, in Jesus' day. So whatever uh, a day's wages would be for someone who is, uh, common laborer, and that the talent was a very high unit of currency and uh, worth somewhere around 6,000 denarii. So 6,000 days wages. Um, there's, there's some debate on how much that would be today. Some have said as little as $300,000. Others have said, well, these coins were made of silver and gold, so if you actually take the worth of the silver and the gold, it's probably closer to a million dollars. So this master gives his servants five million, two million, one million, right? His total capital that he's giving out to his, is eight million dollars. I mean, I don't care what time period you live in, that is a lot of capital. It's a lot of money. And it's intended to compel us to think of Christ's generosity. It's intended to, to move us to worship, to praise God from whom all blessings flow. Jesus gives great gifts to us. Jesus gives abundantly. He gives much. He gives generously. And so 
we see this compelling vision, this compelling master who gives generously and desires for his servants to use the, the money, the gifts that he has given. And so the first two, they, they know their master. They understand who their master is and they, they receive this gift and they double their master's money. They get to work immediately after the gift was given. Look at verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. Right? He went and got right to work. He traded, right? It says he took this money and he traded. We don't know what he traded, but he is active in economic activity in order to create wealth, right? He has taken what has been given to him and he maybe had an idea already or maybe he, an idea came to him, but he took that money and he went and he created wealth. It's like, you know, the greatest episode of, Sh- of Shark Tank you've ever seen, right? Uh, this, they've, this, all this capital is given and they double it. This guy comes back not with just a, a little bit more. He comes back with $10 million. And so we see this capital grow because he went to work and used it. The, uh, the second servant is given $2 million. He doubles it. He goes at once. Likewise, we don't know if he was trading with it or, or what he did. Maybe he invested it in some other way. Maybe he, you know, um, had a great uh, harvest or whatever. We don't know exactly what he, what he does with his money, but he uses it and creates from it. He, they are both the opposite of the last guy, right? They, they go immediately. They uh, they have great industry. They, they seek to work hard and, and to create this wealth. And the last guy, it's not seen quite so much in the English, but in the Greek, it's almost as if the way that Jesus dis- explains is that the first two guys went out quickly and got to work and had ideas and wanted to see how they could create this, this wealth and grow economically. The third guy, it's almost like, well, he kind of wasn't sure what to do, and then he finally got around to deciding, I'm just going to bury it in the ground. It's kind of what we see in the Greek. What's interesting, these two first two servants, not that they just went, not not only that they went immediately and, and, and worked to create more wealth by, through trade and other means, but when we look at their, when the master comes back, they were both rewarded equally, right? You know, I mean, think about it. I mean, a guy's in five million, he comes back with 10 million. I mean, the master might, if I was the master, I'd be like, wow, man, you're amazing. Wow, you came back with $10 million? Holy cow. You know, I mean, and the guy with the two talents that comes back to four, I might've been like, hey, wow, that's, wow, that's really good. Came back. With four million, I mean, it's not as good as the ten million, but hey, that's four million is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, that's really good. Good job. But no, look at how they're both rewarded equally, and the equality is important here. Um, what commentator notes that both servants receive the same reward shows that what is valued is not one's 
accomplishments in a quantitative sense, but fidelity of one's commitment. See, Jesus is not necessarily, he's not, I mean, he rejoices in the bounty, in the, in the growth, but he's not necessarily interested in who's better or who was able to create more wealth or who had greater economic activity. No, he's interested in their faithfulness. He's interested that they are good and faithful servants. Right? He calls them good and faithful servants. Well done to both. They're, both are given the exact same reception, the exact same, even though one has clearly produced more economic growth than the other. But what is important is their fidelity to their commitment, their faithfulness to what they have been given. You know, wealth creation is, a, in all its dimensions, a vital part of our creation design and the cultural mandate. Right? God has given us the mandate to take what he's given us and multiply it, right? To create out of what the resources that he's given us, make more, grow more, greater economic opportunity, greater wealth, not for necessarily, not just for ourselves, but that it might bless others, right? Andy Crouch uh, explains this, that, you know, that God gives us wheat, right? God created wheat. God didn't create bread, right? He created wheat, and we take the wheat, and we uh, harvest it, and then we grind it, and then we take the flour, and we add milk, and eggs, and butter, and yeast, and we create bread. God gives us grapes, and we take those grapes, and we crush them, and we ferment them, and we make amazing, tasteful wine. You see, we are given this mandate to take what God has given us and use it to grow capacity, right? A, a stock of wheat, right? A couple stocks of wheat could probably, if you just ate the grains, can feed one person. You make a loaf of bread, you can feed a whole family. And so these servants are taking this creation mandate, what they've been given, and they've expanded it and grown it and found ways to use what their master has given them in, in ways that bring about more wealth creation. And we can think, we can just kind of espouse from that that this wealth creation also created other opportunities for other people, right? Their economic activity was not just for themselves, but it helped others create economic activity as well. So as we look at these first two servants, we see uh, a few things that stand out in terms of how they understood economic activity and how we are to understand economic activity. And I, I've taken these from Tom Nelson's book, Economics of Neighborly Love. They aren't explicit in our text, but but the text certainly points to them. The first is economics of mutuality. Instead of a sole bottom line of profit, there is a triple bottom line to be concerned about profit, people, and planet. Right? As good stewards of what God has given us, we are to 
seek profit. There's nothing wrong with that. We see these two servants who made a lot of profit. We are to care for people in the process and God's creation. All three of those things are aspects of this economics of mutuality. And we can kind of see this pointed to in our text is that these two create good from the money that has been given to them. And they've been um, encouraged for it, right? They've, there's a sense here that they've used this in such a way that honors the master. There's economic integrity. Proverbs that we read in our Old Testament reading speaks repeatedly about economics and the moral component of honesty, transparency, and fairness in economic activity. Right? These two servants obviously were showed economic integrity in how they made this, this money. Right? Because the master says, well done, good and faithful servants. You know, if they weren't good and faithful servants, and if they were breaking the laws of God to create this money, if they were, you know, uh, using the poor, if they were oppressing the poor, if they were not uh, adhering to the Sabbath laws and all these things, the master would not say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so they show economic integrity in the way that they produce this wealth create this economic environment. We also see economic diligence, right? We already talked about how they received it and they went, right? Went, uh, went right away. He went away, right? And did with it and traded with them. Right? Economic diligence, productivity, and wealth creation are manifestations of wise living, now, diligent work doesn't always lead to prosperity, but in general, wise and economic diligence are the mark of wise living. Work and economic health, we need to see, comes from this economic diligence. These two showed that in, their, in the way that they produced wealth. And then finally, economic generosity. This may be the hardest one to see in our text. But in economic generosity, we see a virtuous person who has economic integrity, builds wealth through economic diligence, has capacity, and is expected to show economic generosity. You know, we don't know enough about these servants, but we do know about the master. And the master was obviously a wealthy man, a very generous man, one who gave generously to his servants. And the expectation would be that as they have been given to generously, that what they have created would be used generously as well. They're expected to show the same type of generosity as their master. You see, the people, or as Jesus calls them, servants, people who serve God and others, the people of the kingdom of heaven on earth now and in heaven in the kingdom to come are not passive. To enter into the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ is to enter into his workforce, so to speak. And 
is to return in some sense to Eden, not to the garden itself. We know that all of history is pointing to the city of God in Revelation, but to a sense of a pre-fall holiness where work is given as a divine gift and not a curse. Let's put it this way. Do your kingdom work well and we'll be rewarded with more work now and especially in the kingdom to come. You know, I need to maybe just pause for a moment and remind us all that our work does not give us access into the kingdom. We are welcomed into the kingdom, right? Jesus, without anything, Jesus says that we are dead in our uh, trespasses and sin. We are brought into the kingdom by his work, not by our work. We do not receive grace because of what we do or what we provide or how much we see the growth of the gifts that we've been given. We need to be reminded that it's not by works, but by grace that we are in the kingdom. But make no mistake, as Christ has brought us into the kingdom, he brings us into the kingdom to be workers in the kingdom, to be about kingdom work. And so while we aren't, don't gain entrance into the kingdom by our works, only through the work of Jesus, we do enter into the joy of the master as we work in his kingdom. Right? That's what we see here. The first reward that is received is praise. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. The second reward is more responsibility. You've been given little. Now I am going to give you much. And the third is the greatest. Enter into my joy. Right? not enter into the joy of the kingdom, not enter into the joy of heaven, not enter into some metaphysical joy. Enter into my joy, Jesus says. I pray that these truths motivate us to press on in the race that we are running, in the work that we have been given in the kingdom to press on in the important kingdom work that Christ has called us to, even in economic shalom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are indeed a God who um, is over all things, cares about all things, including economics. Lord, we pray that we would be people who are servants who are good and faithful with what you have given us. Lord, help us to not be 
like those who are inactive because we do not understand who you are. Lord, we pray that by your spirit we would know you more and more and act in the goodness that we would enter into your joy. Lord, thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.